aging is a privilege that's denied to many. Welcome to It's Not Human Sexuality, the show that goes beyond sexuality to reproductive health. Understanding the foundations of reproductive health allows you and the ones you love to make better decisions about your health, mind, and relationships. This podcast is co-hosted by Dr. Betsy Cairo, or Dr. B, and Mandy Johnson. Dr. B has her doctorate in human reproduction and is a board-certified reproductive biologist. She is also a certified sexuality educator with supervisory standing and over 20 years experience teaching at the graduate and undergraduate level. She is the owner of the only commercial cryobank in Colorado and is the executive director of the nonprofit Look Both Ways. Her nonprofit specializes in reproductive health education. Mandy Johnson is a high school family and consumer science teacher with more than 15 years experience and a master's degree in education. She is also a certified sexuality educator and is treasurer on the board of Look Both Ways. The two have been friends for many years and are passionate about changing the way we educate our youth about their reproductive health. I'm Dr. Betsy Cairo, Dr. B, and my right-hand person, Mandy Johnson, is not here with me today, but I know she's wishing us well. So today we have Dr. Gretchen Fry. A premenopausal vagina is much like a pleated skirt. It's kind of soft and cushy and stretchy and thrown into a lot of folds. And a postmenopausal vagina is much more like a tight pencil skirt. Gretchen began her obstetrics and gynecology practice in Littleton, Colorado in 1989. Over time, she became more interested in integrative medicine, which she utilized during the following years in solo and later group OBGYN practice settings. There are very low dose forms of estrogen that are nothing short of miraculous in fixing this problem. She practiced office-only gynecology from 2010 until 2019 and has now retired from clinical practice. During her years of practice, she developed a special expertise in menopausal medicine. This included prescribing a wide variety of hormonal preparations, including compounded bioidentical hormones when it was indicated. Another area of interest of hers is the treatment of sexual difficulties, including low desire and vulvar pain syndromes. You can be quite aroused without being lubricated, and you can be lubricated without being aroused. Sexual pain syndromes can be challenging to diagnose and treat, but also very rewarding. She has found that a team approach utilizing several providers with different skills provides the best chance of success. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for giving us your time. Thanks for inviting me. I can't, I love talking about all this stuff. Yeah, and I think our listeners are a wide range of ages. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked about Look Both Ways and teaching our youth and our kiddos about reproductive health. But of course, you know, we all will age and we all need to understand a lot of this. Plus, hopefully there's parents listening and this will definitely be beneficial for them. And I've heard you speak, and one of the things I really respect about your presentations is you lead with this, and I quote, this presentation concerns individuals with ovaries and the changes in ovarian function and related events with aging. The terms female and women will be used. It is understood that not all persons assigned female at birth, which is also known as AFAB, will identify as female or as woman. I want our listeners to know this and understand where you are coming from during this podcast. 
So thank you for that qualifier. Sure. I, I know that uh, occasionally a trans man has heard a presentation and then has had questions about whether this is going to apply to him. And um, it, the answer is it, 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 to some degree, but we won't have time to get into the differences uh, of that today. And that's because of their testosterone uh, Yeah, treatment. a trans man not taking any hormone therapy will experience menopause similarly to a cisgender woman, but but one who is on testosterone therapy is going to have a, a, a different experience. Right, and that's a really important distinction for our listeners. Um, I, I, I kind of want to historically talk about really in general terms what it means to be an OBGYN. And I know um, w- when you started practicing, you also were an obstetrician. Is that correct? That's correct. So I started practice in 1989, as you noted, and uh, I did the full spectrum of OBGYN for most of the next 20 years, and that means uh, taking care of uh, pregnant women, uh, doing deliveries, including C-sections, doing all kinds of reproductive-related surgeries, laparoscopies, hysterectomies. Um, OBGYNs also do a certain amount of urologic surgery, uh, repairs for urinary incontinence, and so on. And then, of course, we do annual exams and well care for women. And it was that combination of that kind of trifecta of the surgeries, the well care so that I was not always seeing people with acute problems. And then that magic piece of deliveries and pregnancy care that just um, drew me into OBGYN. It's, there's no specialty quite like it. Definitely. It it covers cradle to grave is what we like to say. (laughs) And um, for how long did you deliver? Did you deliver babies? How long did you do that? My last delivery I did in the summer of 2010, so for about 21 years. Um, and if you counted residency, that was another four years, so about 25 years. Which is a long time. And I think what people don't understand is there's a high malpractice liability that you know obstetricians carry. And so when you stopped delivering babies in 2010, that didn't mean your liability stopped there. Is that correct? No, the liability continues. Um, the statute of limitations in most states is age 21. So a baby I delivered, um, I could be liable for a bad outcome up until the, that child was an adult at age 21 in most scenarios. Which would take you to 2031. Yes, <laughs> it's not over yet. <laughs> I know, and I think, and the reason I bring this up um, is because I think it's really important people for people to understand that it's not an on-off switch. You know, it's not like okay, I was practicing and then I'm not, and the liability. I mean, I don't know of any other practice or specialty that has this type of tail on it. I mean, it's it's quite extensive, and um, it's asking. You know, it's a, it's a lot to have to let it go out 21 years after your last delivery. I mean, I I've always admired that concept of OBGYN and, and the importance of how much of that is carried, you know, after even after stopping delivery. But when you did stop delivering in 2010, you still practiced, and this is what you meant by your gynecology only practice. Right. So I was no longer taking care of pregnant women. Um, I was just taking care of women. And that actually included uh, trans women in the last few years of my practice. And some trans men as well, as uh, my practice had already begun to include a lot of menopausal patients before I stopped doing deliveries and surgeries. And, and that practice only grew as I continued in the in the office only 
phase. Um, and then because I became more and more experienced with different kinds of hormone therapy, um, uh, there was a need in the Denver community for individuals who could prescribe therapy for transgender patients. And so uh, for several years, I uh, did that prescribing as well, the last several years of a practice for me. Sure. Okay. And then, so as, so one of the things that, you know, we're talking about when we talk about uh, women throughout their life cycle, and not only, you know, just as we age, but as we age reproductively, and in our sexual medicine and reproductive health medicine concept, we have a lot of terms that probably our listeners maybe have heard, and they think of it as a word and not a process. And I was wondering if you could briefly give us definitions of premenopause, premature menopause, perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause. And I know that's sort of a, a big chunk to, to take on, but I think that it sort of outlines um, the path that, that we take as we age and what those terms mean and understanding their, their process. Thanks. You know, that's the best place to start one of these discussions. So um, in this in a different sense than we have terms for an analogous phase earlier than in life, um, we when we're going through adolescence or puberty, everybody understands that that's a stage. It's a process. Um, you you start as a child, you end as an adult, um, and there's a whole lot going on in between. In the same sense, we need a, a word like that for the menopausal transition. But what we have instead is the term menopause, which is a retrospective diagnosis. It means it's been a year since the last menstrual period. So you can't even know that you're menopausal until a whole year went by. And you can think you're menopausal and then, oops, here's another period. And I guess I'm not menopausal yet. And yet it is a process every bit as much as adolescence, a process of, I, I don't think less than two and often six or seven years or more, and we've invented the term perimenopause then to, to reflect kind of the whole process from start to finish. Uh, and premenopause would, would usually mean any time before that last period, and postmenopause would be any time after, which is the rest of our lives. Uh, so uh, that I hope that clarifies the terminology a little bit. We'll mostly be talking about perimenopause because that's when most of the bothersome symptoms happen with a, with a couple of important exceptions. Exactly. And then, of course, there's postmenopausal stage two, which is after menopause, but there are things that can happen there that we need to be aware of as well that can be flags for things that can need to be checked out, like, for instance, postmenopausal bleeding. Right. Okay, so let's start, let's kind of start with that. Um, with perimenopause, uh, peri meaning around this concept of menopause, the in and out of sort of having one foot in both worlds, describe what someone might experience during this time? So what they might experience would be um, presuming that they used to have somewhat regular menstrual cycles, um, uh, menstrual period around once a month. Often the first thing that happens is that rhythm is lost. The periods begin to show up early or late or not at all. Maybe a whole month will be skipped. Um, at the same time, the amount of bleeding may change. It may be very light. It may be very heavy. It might be both. It might start and stop and start again. Uh, so that's kind of the first sign. And often before long, 
There will be um, changes in mood and energy and sleep that will go along with that. And that's reflecting the the less consistent rhythm of hormones uh, now that the cycles are no longer regular. And things will go in and out. The, the cycles will go back to regular. Things will seem to settle down again for a while, and then the whole business will start up again. And as, uh, as you get further into the perimenopause, the estrogen levels, are, which have been fluctuating up and down, up and down, over time gradually average lower and lower. And at some of the times when estrogen bottoms out, uh, for most women, there are going to be some degree of hot flashes and uh, you know just sudden bursts of feeling the heat rush up your neck into your face. Uh, one of my patients said, it's like when I got teased on the playground and my face turned bright red, that kind of a feeling. Um, and if they can happen at night, um, waking up in a sweat, wanting to throw the covers off and, uh, and then becoming cold and having to throw the covers back on. Uh, so you can imagine that's pretty disruptive to sleep. And even in those who don't have real severe hot flashes, there's often uh, disrupted sleep, just lack of that deep sleep that used to be there. And the unpredictability, the, the lack of sleep, the hot flashes, if they're there, the fatigue can start to lead to some other problems, some mood swings and crankiness, um, some Obviously, we've already said fatigue, some some cognitive difficulties, short-term memory uh, problems, and a kind of a feeling of fog or trouble concentrating. So that that's kind of a a catch-all picture of a lot of things that are going on in the in the first half, let's say, of the perimenopause. And and in addition to that, are we seeing? Uh, can we see body changes, weight gain, um, a shift in where our, our weight? Uh, lands is it is it more in the belly? Um, you know, I think we start to see uh, our our bodies change in that regard too. Potentially, I mean, maybe not for all people, but yeah, I think the number one complaint of my perimenopausal patients is what is this, and this being the middle that they point at, <laughs> uh, which is the five to fifteen pounds that most of us seem to gain around this time, and. Um, it's partly due to the fact that as as we're passing through this transition, we're losing muscle mass, uh, and unless we work hard to maintain it, it will go, and our our metabolism drops, and therefore it's easier to put on some weight. And also, as the balance of hormones shifts, now where the weight goes when we put it on also shifts. It no longer rests so much in our hips and thighs, and it goes more to the middle. Just as you say, I decided that one day that that must might be why they call it middle age, because we all develop a middle, <laughs> even if we never had one before. <laughs> middle. That's, that's yeah. excellent. What, what is the average age women might experience this? I know, um, I, historically, I know some of this can be inherited. So um, depending yeah. on when your mother went through menopause, you might go through menopause approximately the same time. Yeah, I think too much stock gets put in that. The The evidence would show that uh, there's only about a 50% correlation, 50-50 with your mom, uh, your mom's age. Uh, there are genetic factors, but the only time they may really come into play is, say, with different syndromes that cause premature menopause. Um, so it's hard to say based on your mom's experience, you might match, you might not. The typical age to start having some kind of changes that kind of herald the onset of menopause would be the late forties to early fifties. It's not considered premature unless it happens before age 40. 
so there's quite a wide range there. I've seen plenty of women in their early 40s begin to have the perimenopausal changes, and I've seen uh, women into their late 50s who, who were still chugging along with regular periods. So somewhere in between is, is the average, but it's a very wide range. And what what is your what you know you and I've talked extensively about the WHI study and um, how it really probably affected a lot of women going through menopause because they all based on that very flawed study uh, decided to go off their their uh, hormone replacement and so um, can, walk us through the importance of that of hormone replacement and what yeah, the benefits that to, we get out yeah. of that. Love to do that, as you know. It's one of my yeah. champion comments. So, yeah, I remember the day in 2002 when that news broke. So the Women's Health Initiative Study, WHI, was, was designed to, they thought, show off the health benefits of estrogen and, and as it turns out, a synthetic progestin, hormone replacement, um, for aging. It was designed to, to show that there would be heart protection and and mortality protection and so on. And they, it was it was quite a large study. There were 10,000 women in each arm of the, of the study, and it was well-constructed for, for the purposes it was looking at. They, they weren't interested in relief from menopausal symptoms, so they chose women who were, who were done with menopause almost completely uh, or almost exclusively, and it was an, so it was an older group of women. There, were, there was a, uh, some that were under 60, uh, some in their 50s, but many were in their 60s, 70s, and even a little beyond. And what they did was they used the most common hormone replacement at the time. They gave the women either Premarin, which is a pill form of estrogen derived from pregnant mare's urine. That's where they get the name Premarin. Uh, and they also gave them Provera, which is a synthetic progesterone. It's not the same as our body's own progesterone. Medroxyprogesterone is the generic name. So if the women still had their uterus, they, they received Premarin and Provera because if you give estrogen to a woman with a uterus, you must give a progestin with it or you have an increased risk of uterine cancer. So that was the standard of care. Then there was an equal-sized group of women who had undergone hysterectomy, and they took only the Premarin. And it's important, we'll get back to that group in a minute. What the Women's Health Initiative found, they never got to formally and properly report their results. One of their investigators decided to go to the press uh, at the moment when at five years into the study, they found that there was an increase in breast cancer in the Premarin and Provera or PremPro group that still had the uterus. And, uh, and the increase was, was thus. They had 10,000 women in their study group. The background rate of breast cancer for a group of women that age in the U.S. at that time was 30, 30 breast cancers per 10,000. So they saw instead 38 cancers. So this was an increase of about 12%. So it was an increase uh, over baseline, but it was not... Um, it was not a big absolute increase. So you had only an extra eight women in a 10,000-woman study group that had breast cancer. That is less than one in 1,000 extra breast cancer or extra risk of breast cancer. That is a very low risk. 
the World Health Organization likes to rate uh, risks of different diseases and maladies. They consider anything less than one in 1,000 to be extremely low risk. So this breast cancer risk falls into that category. It's really quite low. And the, the most fascinating thing of all to me, the scientist at the time, was that the arm of the study in which they took only the Premarin, they had zero increase in breast cancer in those women, zero increase over baseline. So again, to me as a scientist looking at this, that means the estrogen had nothing to do with it. Probably it was the Provera that caused that increase. But what you have is a great headline which says estrogen causes, I'm sorry, I misspoke before and that's where I lost my thread, 27%. Estrogen causes 27% increase in breast cancer. Well, that's true. It was a 27% increase in a very small number. And so the relative risk of breast cancer with combined hormone therapy is 1.27. But what we hear, what most of us hear, and even a lot of our colleagues in, in primary care and even in gynecology here, when they hear 27% increase is in their brain that converts to, oh, if you take hormones, you've got a 27% risk of getting breast cancer. Not, no, <laughs> you still have a, you know, 1.27 in 10,000 risk instead of a one in 10,000, you know, or whatever it turns out to be. But it's, it's the difference between absolute risk and relative risk. And that has been lost. And the scientific community has been trying to get that message out for what is it, 20 years now, you know, ever since that study came out. It has, but I, I hear you. I went to a lot of workshops and conferences where many uh, healthcare providers, physicians were getting up and saying, no, we need to stop hormone replacement. And people did. I mean, my even my sisters went off it and I just thought to myself, oh my goodness, the United States or the world in general is going to have one gigantic hot flash all at the same time because everybody's going to go off their hormones. And I think people started saying, well, I'm going to go through menopause because it's natural. It's a natural process. And I, my comment is, but so is tooth decay, and we fight it every step of the way. So I think it's important to empower women, and I'm sure you support me in this, that it's okay to not have symptoms while, you know, going through the, what we call the change of life. Uh, I, right? Yeah. Would you agree with that? <laughs> I would. And I, I wouldn't stand out there and say, oh, everybody should take hormones or needs to take hormones. That's more of an, a, a viewpoint from the optimal aging camp who, who likes to you know, promote everyone taking every hormone to youthful levels indefinitely. And I don't think that's been proven to be helpful. But the way I always approached it was, um, are you symptomatic? Are you symptomatic enough that you're that it's interfering with your life? And, and therefore, you sought me out because I'm, I'm quite aware that there are plenty of women who do just fine, <laughs> don't have, need to take any hormones. But if you're coming to me and telling me this, this and this is going on, then, you know, should you consider a trial of hormones? And if it makes you feel better, you should feel comfortable that we, the, the small risk that we know of happens after five years of use. It happens with this particular formula of hormone replacement. And therefore, if you use it less than five years, it's hard to say you're at any increased risk. Yes. And I mean, I can attest to the importance of being on the uh, hormone therapy because um, I, I, you know, I'm on a patch and I know if I don't necessarily take the 
prescribed amount because for me it was too high. And so two patches a week was too high for me. So I cut it back to uh, one patch a week. And I would, when I would start to feel symptoms, I would replace my patch and, and it works for me. And I think um, hopefully people can, can do that because that's always seems to be a common concern or complaint women have is that the hormones that they're on, either they don't feel right or, and we, we don't dial it back or we don't, it's hard to, to dial in a formula that says you need this much. And it, and it kind of is something, don't you think that maybe it just has to be played with to find the right balance for what works for that particular person? Yes. Yes. And it's not a satisfying answer. I know that we're in this culture, we love numbers and we love measurement and nobody loves it more than people in medicine. But in fact, um, it's not very helpful to monitor uh, hormone levels. It's, it's absolutely not helpful for either diagnosing menopause or diagnosing a need for hormones that is completely based on clinical history and symptoms. And the dose that's going to work is going to be a bit of trial and error because you can line up 20 women or 100 women who are clearly in menopause and symptomatic. You can give them all the same dose of estrogen. It's going to work for some and not for others. And you can titrate them to the dose they feel good at. And you can then test all their estrogen levels on that steady dose, and they'll all be different. Some women feel great at 30 picograms per ml. Some don't feel good till you push them to almost 200. And it's just everybody's different. And I think that's really important for our, uh, our listeners is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, and it, it we can't dial it in, and it does take some time maybe to, to find the right combination. And but I think it's important to empower um, women to say, can we play with this a little? You know, can we, can I play with my dosage a little? And of course, the medical community has to be open to saying, sure. <laughs> right. And that's why it's good if, if you're not getting the answers you want to see if you can find someone who does a lot of menopause work. It took me a while to learn this. When I started doing it, I wasn't menopausal myself yet. And so I had to listen hard to my patients and what they were telling me. Um, and then you know, until that life experience you know, chimed in there too. But, um, you know, it, you, you have to realize it, it may take some tweaking and, and you're right, it should be empowered to say, well, this is great, but um, it's not quite what I need. Can we play with it? Can we play with the dose a little bit? And there should be follow-up visits. Um, I always had my patients make a follow-up typically in six to eight weeks, and I would encourage them not to change anything over that span of time because it takes a while for things to even out. And I always tell, told them, if you're perfectly happy, you can cancel the appointment. Don't worry about it. But that way we've, we've got a chance to talk again if things aren't perfect yet. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And um, I think that's solid and probably very appreciated by your patients for sure. I think, you know, where they always say we've come a long way, baby. And I, I think we have, I mean, obviously my mother, my definitely my grandmother, they were just told it was all in their head, you know, that they really weren't experiencing this, you know? And I think that's probably why women turned to alcohol <laughs> during that <laughs> time. Frame. They'd, go away, they'd have a, they'd have a breakdown and go away to a rest home for a while because oh, they, otherwise they have, we're going to take everybody's head off. Right. Yeah. Cause they had the hysteria you know, they, they were having the hysteria, the hysterics. Right. And I'm just thinking, oh boy. Yeah. But I, the crankiness is real. It's real. It's very real. Yeah. I mean, there are yeah. some days you wake some... up and you go, wow, did some, did everybody have an extra bowl of stupid this morning? You know, 
So I remember one patient saying, I don't know if all the people around me have gotten more irritating or if I'm just noticing it more. <laughs> That's classic. <laughs> Perfect. I know. Yeah, it's probably a bit of both. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> challenging. But. but there, it's real. The crankiness is real. Yeah. And I is. always like how if you're talking to a couple or whatever, and she'll say, I don't know, honey, if I have I been more cranky? And I'm just thinking, wow, that is such a loaded question, you know. And they kind of just shrug their shoulders like, what? <laughs> yeah. No, do not you. Do these pants make my rear end look big? Yeah, no, your rear end makes those pants look big. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now it's true. Usually, um, you know, in the background where they couldn't be seen, nodding their head up and down. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that darn dryer. Anyway, um, so this is all the stuff that's going on, you know, we've talked about covering the hormones, the mood swings, the stages, but there are other things that piggyback onto this time frame. And I know you go into great length about this in, in some of your presentations, but we talk about sexual dysfunction and what's happening to the body in general, like what's happening to the vagina and its elasticity. And can you start, start us off on some of those changes and what, what we're experiencing, what to expect and how we can I, I, you use the analogy, which sure. I love, is a pleated skirt versus a pencil, yeah, skirt. pencil skirt. I love right. that. So, so to start a little more general and then quickly narrow in, what we have um, as we age, even apart from the menopause, is we have some decrease in genital sensation. So um, the clitoris and the, the, vul- the labia, the vulva, are not as sensitive as they used to be. Um, and that means that it can be a, take a little longer to get aroused and to reach orgasm. The pelvic floor muscles can lose some of their strength and tone, just like all the other muscles all over our bodies, and that can diminish some of the strength and feeling of orgasm. And then as the menopause progresses further and estrogen levels end up lower and lower and lower, and particularly after that last period and a year or two into the future, um, it can really begin to be a problem that the, the vaginal lining becomes thinner. It's not just the vagina, but the inner labia and the urethra as well. All those tissues are estrogen dependent, meaning when you take away the estrogen, um, they they atrophy. And that means they get thin and dry and fragile. And uh, in the case of the vagina, it becomes tighter because part of what makes the vagina so amazing is that it has all these elastic fibers in its walls. And it's when you look uh, into the vagina with a speculum on a pelvic exam, you see that the walls are thrown into all these folds and it's very uh, you know, moist, stretchy, uh, and um, can, can really uh, accommodate a lot of differences in size. So um, that's where the, uh, another lecturer I heard had this wonderful analogy, which I stole, which was you know, that uh, premenopausal vagina is much like a pleated skirt. It's kind of soft and cushy and stretchy and thrown into a lot of folds. And a postmenopausal vagina is much more like a tight pencil skirt because that thick lining thins down to just a few cell layers, the elastic fibers go away, and the whole effect is one of tightening. And so um, at the same time, the, the thin lining is much more sensitive and fragile. It doesn't lubricate like it used to uh, because a lot of the, the lubrication comes um, through the vaginal walls themselves from the blood flow that surrounds. Uh, and uh, the blood flow to the whole pelvic area is 
is diminishing gradually over time as well. So a whole combination of factors. Now, for about half of my patients who did not choose to take any hormone therapy, they were still, if they wanted to have penetrative intercourse, they still could. It was comfortable, especially almost always with some kind of lubricant. For about for the other half, it just got to the point where it was not possible at all anymore without pain. And uh, the other problem that can go along with this, even if there's not penetrative intercourse happening, is that I mentioned the urethral lining is also estrogen dependent. When it thins and dries and becomes more sensitive, um, and along with this change in both the urethra and the vagina, the bacterial balance changes. It's no longer as protective. Um, now the urethral tissue being thin and not having the protective bacteria, it's easier to get a bladder infection. And there's often an increase in problems controlling the bladder with incontinence, with coughing, sneezing, um, laughing, and that sort of thing, but also urge incontinence, the, the when you got to go, you got to go kind of feeling. So that's uh, all that together is called the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM. And there's a whole lot of um, literature being written about that in the last 20 years. Yeah, and I think that this is very validating, I know, for a lot of people to hear this and know that it has nothing to do with their desire. It has nothing to do with you know how much they care about their partner or whether or not they want to have penetrative sex. It has to do with it's not, it doesn't feel good. And, you know, obviously if something doesn't feel good, eventually you just avoid it or stop doing it. And then this can, of course, lead to discord with your partner because they think something is happening. And so communication breaks down and it becomes a, a mess. And so I think it's just important for people to always say, it's not you, it's it's what I'm going through. There's no shame in that. This is what we do and let's fix it. So what are the one of the ways we can fix it? Do we have besides taking estrogen, you know, we, like you said, lubrication. Um, right. So um, taking estrogen for your whole body uh, may not be necessary for this. I do want people to take away from this talk. If, if they take away one thing, it's that there are a very low dose forms of estrogen that can be used vaginally that are nothing short of miraculous in fixing this problem. Um, and they are doses that are low enough that they carry no breast cancer risk, no heart attack risk, no stroke risk, no health risks of any kind that anyone has been able to document. Uh, unless you're a special population, say a breast cancer survivor who cannot have estrogen, um, you know, except for the, some of those special cases. And that is because they're, they're very tiny doses of estrogen, but even a tiny dose placed right there in the vagina, right there next to the vulva in the urethra, will restore that tissue to the pleated skirt status. It will go back to what it used to be. And one of the few examples that I know of in medicine that you can actually turn back the aging process. Um, so for, for some women, that's going to be necessary if they want to maintain that ability to have penetrative sex. For others, as I've said, it's not. Some women don't have any discomfort at all. Um, some will do fine uh, with uh, good lubricant, and there are lots of them out there, a good silicone lubricant that stays slippery a long time, a good natural lubricant, maybe coconut oil or uh, one of the products out there that, that combines you know, several, like an Emerita personal lubricant or something. And... Uh, continuing to engage in penetrative sex because that will help to keep the tissue vascularized and 
and um, somewhat elastic, and um, that that's all really helpful. Now, some others will choose to go another route and just say, you know, let's discover some stuff that's not penetrative intercourse. Well, let's discover other stuff that feels good, and, and just, uh, I don't want to use estrogen down there. Um, let's just get creative. Now, these estrogen suppositories, these are suppository form, right? So there are little tablets, little suppositories that go in vaginally, both of them, um, and there are creams. Yeah, so those are the three main ways to do it. There's also a the, ring. Oh, yeah. okay. And is this uh, prescription only? Prescription only. Yeah. Do you think there there's, there could be a time where this wouldn't be prescription only, where you could just buy it right next to the KY jelly or, you know? Oh, boy, would that be nice? Um, and, now, and I was about to say a caveat. There is one company that, that makes some products that are that don't require prescriptions, and that company is Bezwecken. Um they're out of Canada, and they contain uh, one of the one of the estrogens, estriol, that is not regulated by the FDA. It is used in Europe, and I think under prescription for this GSM for the genitourinary syndrome, and it can be helpful. Um, I think you get a more predictable result with the prescription medications, and I I don't know what to say about whether they'd ever be over the counter. It seems unlikely. The FDA still hasn't even agreed to take the black box warning off of these vaginal preparations. The black box warning being the one that's found on systemic estrogen that says, if you take this medicine, you are at increased risk of stroke, heart attack, breast cancer. Never mind the fact that the literature clearly shows there are none of those risks for the vaginal products. And I had to tell, you know, look each patient in the eye that I prescribe this for and say, please understand that this black box warning is, is not accurate. We're petitioning the FDA to take it off of there. We're still, we're still working on it. They still haven't done it. <laughs> you know, so over the counter, it seems unlikely. <laughs> yeah. Which is unfortunate, but again, at least it's at this point, I guess, available by prescription. It and I think there. that, yeah, and I think a lot of people don't realize that they that there are other options besides using the patch, you know, um, or just doing straight up hormone replacement, um, or even lubrication in general. I think so much. Um, sometimes I feel like women are shamed if they don't have this magical vaginal lubrication for sex for penetrative sex when we're, you know, we're not machines. And just because someone isn't lubricated doesn't mean they're not enhanced or enticed or or they're not giving consent. I mean, they, right. I, I think we need to really separate those things. And sometimes I just hear, well, if you're not lubricated, you're not ready and you're not interested. And I'm thinking, mm, right. no, that's not true. Just, <laughs> Emily Nagoski addresses this so well in, in that book, Come As You Are. And oh, the right. fact that there's brain-body disconnect, and, and to, to flip that over, lubrication in perhaps a younger person doesn't imply arousal either. They, they right. don't have to connect. You can be right. quite aroused without being lubricated, and you can be lubricated without being aroused. And I, But in this context, obviously, we're just talking about the one direction. Right. Yeah. And I really hope everybody heard that because I think for a lot of women, and probably more than we even realize, they feel a lot of shame around that. And I I think we can just put that to rest. There's no shame in that game. So, um, but so we've talked about all of these things that can happen, things that we can fix. But what are the gifts of menopause? Like the, I think you 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 list it that way. These are the gifts of menopause, and 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 tell our listeners what the gifts are because they're pretty. 
I think they're good. I think they're really they are big. Our, our culture is so youth obsessed that I think one of the biggest worries of, of my menopausal patients was, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to dry up. Sex is going to go away. Nobody's going to want to look at me. I'm, I'm just headed into the, you know, the twilight part of my life. Everything is going to be downhill from here. Well, there are a number of gifts, and and cultures other than ours um, recognize this. We don't have any great, you know, fairy tales or myths about how wonderful it is to be become an older woman. But think about it. There's no more fear of pregnancy, um, if that's been a fear. Sex can be just for pleasure and bonding, um, whether it's for your own pleasure all by yourself or with a partner. Um, you can still enjoy that intimacy. The gifts are knowledge of yourself. You know your body by now. You know what you like. You know what you don't like. And the confidence to speak out about it with your with your partner, old or new. Um, you don't have to care what anyone else thinks. That's the best part about this stage it, it is thinking what you want, doing what you want, understanding there isn't any right way to do this, and you get to make it up as you go along. And that's why older women are so dangerous because we don't give a rip. <laughs> we just yeah, we say what we mean and and you know and we mean what we say. We mean what we say. That's that's uh, that's why older women are so terrifying to so many people. But it's a it's a freedom and a power that um, that we need to embrace and step into. And it's also good to remember that aging. I don't know who the original quote is, but aging is a privilege that's denied to many. You know, we've, we've earned these gray hairs. We've earned these crow's feet. Go ahead, you know, embrace them or not. Get, get your Botox if you want, you know, whatever. But embrace this phase because, you know, you've, you've been through a lot to get here. And you, your life for many women becomes so much more your own at this stage. You know, the, the kids are raised generally if there were kids and you may have parents you're you're taking care of, but you're making your own decisions for yourself a lot more uh, in general. And you know, relationships, even longstanding ones, can be transformed. They can grow. Sometimes they don't make it through this period, but um, but your everything comes up for review and in a good way. Yes, yeah. I, and I and absolutely, and I think that that's 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 great. I always I always like to tell. Um, people that we go from the SUV to the sports model <laughs> because we're just for fun. That's it, man. We're just here for the fun. <laughs> we ain't got time for anything else. <laughs> my my mother-in-law, who is who is sadly has left us a few years back, was one of my absolute role models. Uh, a little Southern belle. She lived to be 103, and uh, at uh, at age 60, when her kids were going off to college. She went down and bought herself a Mustang fastback. She was she was a widow woman, and she just did what she wanted. And she went down and got that car, and she became known all around town. <laughs> That's I, I hats off. I applaud that. Yep, absolutely. Well, this has been very informative. Is there anything that um, I didn't cover that you'd like to to let our listeners know? I mean, I know yeah, there's a ton of stuff right out there. There's but. a ton of stuff. I think the one other thing that, that really bears mentioning, I had a lot of discussions through the years and still do with menopausal women about this idea that um, they've lost their libido. It's gone. They don't know what happened to it. And um, here's the scenario that I nine times out of ten I would hear. And the scenario is thus. Uh, I, I love my 
husband, my partner, um, my, my companion, um, I, you know, wouldn't do anything to harm him or her for the world. Um, once in a while when we do have sex, it, it feels good. Uh, and, and, you know, it's satisfying. And you know what? I think we should do this more, but I just never think of it. And that is a beautiful description of responsive desire. So we, we have to think about desire as, as having two aspects or two phases. And uh, the first type is spontaneous desire. And some other brilliant lecturer has described that as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Someone walks by and you think, whoa, I'm aroused. I want to have sex with that person. And that happens you know, a fair amount when we're younger. So, you know, some people are just completely consumed by it and can't think for a few years till they get a handle on it. That's spontaneous desire. But as we get older, that's so much less common. You see it sometimes when folks are in a brand new relationship, where they can't keep their hands off each other um, at any age. But um, for most of us, what becomes the norm is responsive desire. And that means that it may be, sex may be the furthest thing from our minds, but if that if that partner comes up to us and starts to rub our shoulders or give us a little kiss on the neck or even or you know draw us into a slow dance or even come up and help with whatever it was we were doing and say a few kind words to us and intimacy begins and then desire follows um, you, then then desire might start to awaken yeah maybe I do want to get involved here. Uh, and and it it follows, and that's normal. It's more than normal. It's the norm at this age. And so the fact that it's not there all by itself means nothing. The fact that it can come with the right circumstances and the right encouragement, um, that's that's what's important. If that's not happening no matter what, then we start talking about, you know, what's happening in your life and what might be holding that down. Number one question is always, do you have pain? Because that will shut it down completely, as we talked about earlier. Uh, but if you don't, you know, then maybe we need to explore more or, or talk a little bit with a therapist about what's happening. But that concept of spontaneous desire being mostly a thing of youth and responsive desire being absolutely the way almost all of us work by the time we're past 50. Um, and don't worry about it. That's how it is. You set the stage. You get your brain going. Um, you, you tell your partner what kind of gets you turned on and that, that will kick it off for you. And that's fine. And that is so poignant. I always told my students, uh, in, in, in the college class and graduate classes that libido will fail you. I mean, it's great now. And you can think that, oh, this is it. And I'm like, if you're going to rely on libido for your entire life, it will fail you. And so we always talked about like what you're talking about. And I just always refer to it as sexual motivation, you know, just put it on your menu and, and it, it takes a little, it, you know, like I've got ice cream in my freezer and maybe I don't think about it. And all of a sudden I go, you know, I think I'd like a bowl of ice cream <laughs> and it, it's, yeah. and it's, and it's there. Yay. So I'm so glad you brought that up. And, um, I, th there's not, it's, it's the normalizing piece of it that people can in particularly women can say there's nothing wrong with me unless there is right there like you said if there's pain right. or there's some and and that's we're putting that as an aside but right. um that's that's an important distinction 
And and you have to, sex at this age, you, you need to think about it, plan for it, go ahead and let yourself anticipate it, um, you know, make a date, uh, build build up some some suspense about it, uh, but but plan for it, and or it won't happen. It's 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 like, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you right now. I don't wish I was uh, on the stairmaster or working away at whatever exercise, but you know, when I go do that later, uh, I'll be in the middle of it and I'll think, wow, I'm glad I did this, and I'm going <laughs> to do it again. <laughs> yeah, I should do and this more often. <laughs> I should do this more often, and the more often you do it, the the more you realize that how great it is, and the more often you do it. Yeah, yeah, there it is. Well, I really appreciate the time you've spent with us. This has been very informative, and again, another stellar presentation. I mean, you just you explain things so well and so gently and so succinctly, and I know our listeners will appreciate it as do I. Well, thank you. It's it's a it's quite an honor to be invited on the podcast, and, and I've enjoyed the heck out of it. So, so thank you. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways and the textbook written by Dr. Cairo, that's me. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used in schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we are always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you or to make a donation, please visit at lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Dr. B wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.